Um, as we're looking at John's gospel, we come this morning to another familiar story. Um, so far in the first three chapters, we've seen a lot of movement, a lot of cities, a lot of regions Jesus has been going to. Chapter one, Jesus comes to John to be baptized. He's across uh, from Bethany at the Jordan River. Um, and this is where um, John sees he's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. They, they leave Bethany. They go north to the region of Galilee. Jesus spends most of his time in Galilee. Um, for those of you who have been to Israel, um, it may, Israel is used, Galilee is usually part of Israel. People from West Virginia really identify with it. It looks a lot like this place. Um, you go south to Jerusalem, it's more urban. And so Galilee is very just, it, it's, it's more rural. Jesus hung out there most so he goes north uh, to the region of Galilee. That's where we pick up in chapter 2 where he attends a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Um, and then he goes from the wedding at Cana. He goes to Capernaum, which is just above the Sea of Galilee. He was there for a few days. And then he and his disciples, they go to Jerusalem south uh, to celebrate the Passover. That was kind of the um, rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 with Nicodemus. This is when... When he was in Jerusalem, many Jews believed, the Greek word there is pisteo, in his name. You remember that? When they saw the signs that he had done, but Jesus did not entrust himself or pisteo. He did not believe in them because he knew what was in man. They believed in him, but he did not believe in them because he knew their faith was not authentic. It was like the Jews just liked entertainment that Jesus provided. But Jesus did not come to put on a good show. He came to bring peace to men to be worshipped as a son of God. That's John's purpose in writing. So he has this encounter with Nicodemus. Then Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem. They go to um, Judean countryside where they once again encounter John the Baptist. Um, our passage this morning is from John 4 where we see Jesus and the disciples leaving um, this region of Judea and heading back to Galilee. So they're in, so if you kind of just think of a map here, you got Jerusalem in the south. They're heading north up to the Sea of Galilee. And right in between Jerusalem and Sea of Galilee was this region um, that uh, the Jews did not care for very much. So let's pick up in where we left off last week with. Um, verse 1 of John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Did you catch that language that John uses here? Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, why would Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Well, I think because Jesus knew what was in man. He knew that there were true worshipers in Samaria, and he had to go rescue them. There's some background here that we need to understand that makes this act of Jesus even more beautiful. So, so the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't have the best relationship. When, when, I, when I say they didn't have the best relationship, I mean they hated each other, like hated each other. Have you ever hated someone? 
I don't see any hands. I don't, it's more rhetorical. You just think about it. Have you ever hated someone so much that, that you wish God would just rain down fire and consume that person? Don't, don't raise your hand, even if you had thought that one, okay? Listen to this. This is Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. So Jesus, he's with his disciples, says this in Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So they knew that he worshipped. Um, he was a Jew. He's facing towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, okay, James and John, these are, this is the same John who's writing this. Uh, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now these are two of the 12 disciples that Jesus picked to carry on the gospel. But when he turned and rebuked them, so here Jesus, you know, can imagine the look that he would, so like our kids know that like their mom have a look. Like when they do something, they get the look. I just wonder what Jesus looked here when they said this. He just turned and looked and rebuked them. So, here we know that they did not like each other, Jews, Samaritans, Samaritans, Jews. But why? Why did the Jews dislike the Samaritans so much? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel had at some point divided into two kingdoms, north-south. The Syrians had conquered the northern kingdom, which is where Samaria is located. And they began to take wives from the Israelites. So this made the northern kingdom only half Jewish. Not only were they blended nationality, they were also blended in their worship by worshiping the gods of Assyria. So in verse 9 of chapter 4, we also see that John gives us some commentary here. It says that, that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They just didn't like each other. The Jews didn't think they were really, that, that Samaritans were really Jews, that they were just half Jewish. And so they would rather walk around Samaria out of principle rather than taking the quicker route to go through Samaria. It'd be like if you need to go to Charleston and you just hate Hurricane Taze Valley. And you just, I'm not, I'm not even just driving through there. So you're going to go up Route 2, go all the way to Point Pleasant. You're going to come across, try to bypass that area. Uh, maybe now because of traffic. Well, that wouldn't really get you past the Nitro Bridge. But you just didn't want to go through it, so you'd take the long way around just to avoid it. That's what they were doing. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he, in verse 5, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. All right, notice here that Jesus was wearied. Don't just gloss over that. This is a fascinating statement. John is showing us that God, that spoke everything into existence, has taken on flesh. In his deity, Jesus never wearied. I mean, God doesn't sleep. 
God doesn't slumber. But the moment Jesus takes on flesh, his body becomes weary. John also mentions it was about the sixth hour. The, the day in Jewish times, it would begin at 6 a.m., so we know that this would have been around noon. Well, why would John give us that detail? Let's keep reading verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here we're introduced to a lady who comes to draw water at noon. This is why I think John gives us the, it was the sixth hour point. John highlights this time because this is not the ideal time for a woman to come out and draw water. I think this is showing us that this lady was some type of an outcast. She was scandalous, as we will see. Women would normally come in the morning while it was still cool. They would usually come together, because that's what women do. They travel in flocks, right, to draw water. And she comes alone in the heat. I want you to see what John's doing here. In chapter 3, Jesus encounters a man named Nicodemus. Here in chapter 4, Jesus has another one-on-one encounter, but these two encounters couldn't be any more different. Nicodemus is a man. The Samaritan is a woman. His name is Nicodemus. Her name is unknown. She remains anonymous which I think is very fitting coming right after last week's passage of where John the Baptist says he must increase, I must decrease. It's like John is trying to keep her anonymous, like not making much of her, but making much of Christ. Nicodemus, a Jew, she is a Samaritan. He is highly moral, and as we will see, she is highly scandalous. Nicodemus has gained respect from his people, where she has been rejected by her own. In John 3 and John 4, you will find two opposite people who both desperately need the same very thing. Everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. This passage shows us that the gospel transcends race, culture, gender, economics, your past, So Jesus asked her for a drink, and she replies in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, you know, the ones that want to have fire come down and consume us, how can you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds some commentary that I've mentioned already for us, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him And he would have given you living water. So Jesus is showing her that she is the one who has the true need, not him. He doesn't need her water. He's he's trying to get her to see her true need. He's essentially saying that you are the one who is thirsty. So Jesus confronts the Samaritan lady's need. And in verse 11, she says to Jesus, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You can almost see her air quotes. Where do you get this living water? She completely missed Jesus' metaphor. And then she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? 
Lady, if you only knew. Yes. Yes, I am. She says, he, he gave us the well and drank from it himself. As did his sons and his livestock. Take that. And he would be like, he may have given you the well, but you know the water that's in there? I created that water. I just spoke into existence. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm greater than your father Jacob. I mean, think about this for a moment. If Jesus wanted to show her that he was greater than Jacob, all he had to do was just have her just draw up some water from the well And as the water would come up, and she pulls it up, and the water had been turned into wine, just like he did in chapter two. You think about how, like, her eye, like, she would have already started thinking about marketing schemes at this point, right? A well that brought up wine. Jesus could have simply done what he did at the wedding, but he doesn't do that, not with her. Jesus is looking for true worshipers. Not those who just follow him because he does some cool tricks. So rather than doing a sign, he sticks with this metaphor. Look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him never, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so she's thinking like, you, what are you talking about? You don't even have any water. How are you going to give me water? You don't have anything to draw from this well. This is my well, not your well. Where, what is this water you're talking about? Jesus is showing her that everyone who drinks from this well, including her father Jacob, becomes thirsty again. But this living water that he has will satisfy your thirst forever. So this is a universal truth. Every human thirsts for some thing. And we are all deceived at moments to think that this thing will satisfy you, but after a while, you quickly realize that you are still thirsty. And then you look for something else to satisfy that longing deep inside you. We've all been there and done that. You think some gadget, if this is more of a man problem, but we think if we get this tool, this gadget, this thing, our lives will be so much easier. Then we get that thing, and then the newness wears off, and you got to have some other new thing. Here, Jesus offers water that will satisfy your thirst. What do you thirst for this morning? For some in this room, your soul thirsts for more money, more materials. For others, it's the praise of men. Maybe a promotion at work. You thirst for being liked and approved by others. For some, you, you thirst for control and power. To not be bothered. You thirst for comfort, convenience. Maybe this morning, maybe you're not sure what you really thirst for. One of the best ways to discover what your soul was longing and thirsting for is to look at your emotions. Your emotions are a gateway into your soul. When you're anxious, fearful, angry, 
pay close attention to these sinful emotions because they will show you what your soul desires. So Jesus is about to reveal to this woman what she really thirsts after. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, I could be wrong. She could be playing along with his language. Like, she could be picking up on the metaphor. But I, I think at this point, she's still, she's clueless to his metaphor. I think if she had just said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, I think she might be kind of playing along with his language. But, but when she says, so I won't have to come here to draw water, I think she's still literally thinking about water. Well, Jesus, he's, he's been throwing some jabs at her a little bit. Well, now he... He throws his knockout punch in verse 16. Look what he does. Look what he he says to her. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So, Five husbands, the man she's with now is not her husband. You and I cannot hide things from Jesus. He knows everything about you, every detail, even your thoughts. Isn't that crazy? What's crazier, that, that Jesus knows your thoughts right now? Some of you are like, Man, when's this sermon going to be over? What are we going to have for lunch today? Like, he knows your thoughts right now. What's crazy, that he knows your thoughts or that he knows your thoughts and still loves and desires you? That blows my mind to think that God knows my thoughts and he still loves me. See, this woman... She was attempting to satisfy her thirst through relationships. So far, there's been six men. Five she's married to. A guy she's with now is not not her husband. She's moving from one bad relationship to another, from one bed to another. But none of these men would ever satisfy her. In fact, no man or woman will ever satisfy you. Did you know that? I think sometimes people get married thinking that their spouse will satisfy that longing deep inside them, but that's not fair to the other person. I know that I will never be able to satisfy my wife. Um, it's not because she's you know, hard to please, it's because I just can't. It's not, that's not only, only Christ can. Um, no relationship will ever satisfy you. So Jesus tells this woman about her past. He just unloads on her. Let's see how she responds. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You you think? I mean, here's a stranger just tells you everything about your life. And she says, "I, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she continues, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, did you catch what she's doing here? She tries to pull a fast one. Jesus confronts her, her past, and she tries to change the subject. 
Which mountain is more important? He just says, you've been with, you've had five husbands, guy you're with now is not your husband. And the very next thing that she says is, which mountain is more important to worship on? (laughs) Have you ever engaged in like a religious conversation, maybe somebody at work, maybe a family member, and, and it becomes a little bit personal? You start talking about sin, personal sin, and, and they begin to shift the conversation to like asking about like dinosaurs in the Bible, Noah's Ark. You're like, whoa, 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 let's, let's, we're getting off topic. That, that's kind of what's going on. Jesus wisely guides the conversation back to why he had to come to Samaria. Verse 21, Jesus said there, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All right, there's a lot to unpack here. First, Jesus is teaching that her worship is not about a mountain. Worship is not about location. It's about a person. Sometimes we can limit worship to a service. Like, you know, earlier, Dustin, he mentioned that this is the worship gathering of Huntington Community Church. But is this the only time that you've worshiped this week? I I hope not. Sadly, not everyone here this morning has come to worship. Some have simply come to, to church. It is possible to come to church and not worship. The two things are not the same. And sometimes we can limit the worship of the worship gathering to just the music. I think some uh, churches just confuse their people when they call the one who leads the music the worship director or the worship pastor. Um, We don't call Zach the worship pastor. Um, I mean, what does that even mean? To be the worship pastor. You're the one who oversees all the worship for everyone. Like what? That's such a vague concept. Zach is director of music. He leads our music, does a great job. I love just your leadership, Zach. Um, just stopping us um, and not just continuing to sing that second song. We just stopped. We just said, hey, let's just start over. Great teaching moment, right? Um, and, and so, Zach is doing a great job, but we don't call him the pastor of worship. Um, we see in verse 24 that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. So what does this mean? What does it mean to worship? Worship means to, to make much of something. So here, we're, the idea is that we're making much of God. To worship God in spirit and truth means that we have received the truth. Jesus is the truth. In John 14, Jesus will actually say this. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Worship needs to be centered on the personhood of Jesus Christ. A proper understanding of Jesus is the starting place for acceptable worship. This is why we have to read the Bible. You, you cannot worship something you do not know. So when we just make up you know, hey, I worship, I worship Jesus, but the way you're worshiping is 
not the Jesus of the Bible, then you're not, it's not, it's not, worship, it's not true worship. You're making your own definition of who Jesus is. So Jesus of the Bible is the starting place for acceptable worship. You cannot truly worship God and deny the fundamental truths about him. It'd be like if you said, man, I just love, I just love Adam. I'm like, oh, what do you love about Adam? For those of you who are new, that's me. I didn't introduce myself. My name's Adam. <laughs> oh, I just really love how he's tall, dark, and handsome. That, that's not who he is. So, like, that's not the truth about my character. So when we start putting our own definition on who God is, and it's not defined by the Bible, we get off on this, you know, we're worshiping some other thing, not the God of the Bible. We see in verse 24 that God is spirit. Jesus is teaching that true worshipers must share something of the nature of the person being worshipped. Then notice also that God is seeking after true worshipers. Kind of interesting phrase. God is seeking. Now, he's not seeking because he's lacking something here. He's not seeking those who are... um, maybe dress the best or the biggest givers or the smartest, the brightest, or those without a past. That's not what this is saying. He's seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. The woman hearing all of this says to him in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You mean like you had five husbands and that the man you are now with is not your husband? Kind of like that, all things? And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, here you go. I mentioned the very first week of this series that John forces you to pick, to choose who Jesus is. Is he Lord, lunatic, Liar, just a legend, fairy tale. I who speak to you am he. What a bold statement. The Messiah is coming, the Christ, the Savior of the world. (laughs) Jesus can't make it any more clear. I am he. And you'll see in John's gospel this play on the I am. So you kind of see this here, the, the I am from Exodus 3, the, where the very first time God gives his name is in Exodus, and he says, tell them I am sent you. Jesus does this. There's a play on these words here. So Jesus says, the one who's speaking, I, I am. I am he. So is Jesus lying here? Is he just trying to pull a fast one on this poor lady, taking advantage of her? Or maybe he's a lunatic. Maybe he's some crazy madman who actually believes he is this Christ. Or maybe he actually is Lord, worthy of worship and praise. As, as he says this to her, we see it in verse 25, like the disciples return in like this perfect timing 
just then his disciples came back. This is like a movie when like um, there's this romantic moment from this couple. Like the guy, the first time he tells her that he loves her, then like right in that moment, like as he says, I love you, like the best friend walks in. He's like, hey, guys, what you doing? Like disciples come back right as he says, I am the Christ. It says here that they marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. She left her jar. Remember, this was the entire reason for her coming to the well. She left the jar because she found something greater than the very thing that would sustain her life. She's like, water? Who needs water? I found something better. I have this living water. She found Jesus. Or maybe I should say Jesus had found her. He had to go because he was seeking true worshipers, and she was one of these So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, look, I'll be completely transparent with you. If there's some guy down the street who could tell you all the wrong that I've ever done, I'm not going to go out of my way to try to connect you guys. This woman... Comes and says, hey, like, you guys know me. All the stuff I've done. I know a guy who can tell you everything you've ever done. Come, let me, let me introduce you. This woman went from being an outcast to evangelist in a moment. She went away into the town and said to, said to the people. I love that, that. She went back and said to the people. See, when you truly encounter Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, and you understand what he's done for you, you cannot shut up from talking about what he has done, how he has changed your life. In a sense, she became the Samaritan version of John the Baptist. What was John's role? He he came as a witness about the light. And this is exactly what she's doing. Meanwhile, in verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, they left because he was weary. They left to go buy him food. They come back. But he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. You think in that moment, they're like, wait, wait, what? You have food? Why did we go to town to buy food, Jesus? So the disciples said to one another, has has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Have you ever been in like those situations where you're just, you're just satisfied? Like people are eating, like you're like, I'm I'm, I'm good. I'm just, I I think of my mom, like when we go to visit her, like Christmas time and we're all eating. We're like, mom, are you going to eat? And she just has this fullness about her, just watching all of us enjoy the meal and just watching her family, watching her grandkids grow. She's like, I'm, I'm good. Jesus is saying, you know, I've, my food is to do the will, of the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are wide for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The harvest that Jesus is referring to here, it was the Samaritans, which is amazing thinking about your Jew Samaritan. The gospel is not just a Jewish thing. The gospel is for everyone. This is why we must be a sending church. This is why we talk about missions. Every human being has value and worth. I don't care what skin color they are, what um, socioeconomic they, you know, their background is. Everybody has worth and value. We want to send people out into the harvest because we know that the Father is seeking true worshipers and we get to be his witnesses. I mean, look at the contrast in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed, Pisteo, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And her testimony was what? He told me all that I ever did. Why did the Samaritans believe? It was because of her testimony. It wasn't because Jesus had done a bunch of signs, miracles. This unknown lady simply shares how Jesus changed her life. When it comes to sharing our faith and evangelism, I truly believe we have made it far too complicated. And notice she doesn't go back to her town and decide to go to seminary and study missions so that she could be more effective at telling others about Jesus, learning the culture. She doesn't go back and purchase some evangelism program from Lifeway. She doesn't use excuse that she's never taught, you know, no one's ever taught her how to share her faith, so she doesn't know how. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with getting further education or using some evangelism program. But she simply shares her personal story. I, I love here how, how her past doesn't stop her from being a witness, which I know, ironically, is what keeps many of you from sharing. You just think, well, you know, how could I ever share? Well, you know, this, my past is just too bad. Her tainted past has now become her greatest strength because it's magnified the grace of God. The people are like, God received you? He welcomed you? Well, if he can welcome you, because we kind of do that, don't we? We compare our sins. But look at, in verse 40, we see the fruit of her faithfulness. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. Many more believed. The reason there are many more who are believing is because there was a faithful lady who went and told how Christ had changed her life. And now they're, now they're believing because of his word. John doesn't record Jesus doing any signs in Samaria. And yet many more believe because of his word. 
Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, for we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What an incredible phrase. This is the first people in John's gospel to call Jesus the Savior of the world. Now, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. We know John gets it, but as a people, the Jews still don't get it. But these Samaritans get it. And what Christ is teaching us here is huge. He's teaching us that the gospel transcends all all race. You know, they weren't fully Jews. The Jews looked down upon them. Jesus did not. So these Samaritans called Jesus the Savior of the world. He's, he's there with true worshipers. Verse 43, after two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Now notice again, we're back to they saw what he had done. So the Jews, they liked the signs and wonders. Samaritans just wanted him. They wanted the person. So we take away, what do we take away from a John 4? I think the people you least expect to respond to the gospel could be the very ones that God is seeking. The ones that that guy or girl at work that you want to cast fire down. God's like, I love them. They're mine. I want them. And God has never audibly told me whom he is seeking, so I just assume that he's seeking anyone that he has placed in my life. So we just need to be faithful. We need to just tell people what he's done. Um, Dustin and I have been really like our the whole idea of evangelism and how poorly we have been at just in our own personal life of evangelism, we've just been reflecting a lot and just thinking about being evangelistic and just thinking about like this idea of how we've overcomplicated it. And so, and so Dustin came back from a conference a few weeks ago and, and the guy that was kind of there teaching on evangelism was just saying like, one of the things that they do is they just meet up with people and they just say, hey, can we meet up? And I just want to hear your story. I just want to know if I could share mine. Like, what a, that is so easy. You don't need to go to seminary or take higher ed to be able to, to listen to somebody's story and then be able to share your story, how Christ has changed your life. But I think we're just so afraid of them rejecting us when they're not rejecting us. We're not going to be able to answer maybe their questions. You know, which mountain do we worship on? I don't know which mountain. Just tell them, like, I, I'm not, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure. Let me, let me ask my pastor. Let me do some research. I'll get back to you. That's probably going to be sufficient for most people. They're going to say, ah, I gotcha. If you're having lunch with them or meeting up with them, they probably care about you already. They're not looking to try to, you know, trick you. 
We just need to get over ourselves and just be faithful and just share like this woman. So we don't know who God's working in. We also learn from John 4 that that the gospel transcends all categories. So don't be stingy with the gospel. Share it with everyone. We may think we know how others will respond, but we actually have no idea. I was at a conference a few weeks ago with some church planners, and um, one of the one of the church planners he coaches baseball like me, so we you know we kind of catch up. Um, and he was saying, "Yeah, he's like, man, let me tell you this story." So when I first started coaching, there's a guy, the baseball field, and he was such a jerk, couldn't stand him. He was obnoxious. He was the dad that was just foul mouth, you know, cursing and just yelling at all of the players. He's like, man, I just couldn't stand him. So the Lord just began to break my heart for him. And um, we end up coaching together. And um, I started inviting, you know, going out to lunch with him. We had him over to our house. And I really just began praying um, because I just realized almost he kind of had this relationship of a Jew and a Samaritan. He's like, man, I just hated this guy. I really did. And the Lord just really convicted him. He started praying for the man, so he started going to lunch, he started having him over to his house, and he would just continue just to bring up just conversations about how Christ has changed his life, and after a while, um, <laughs> this guy ends up giving his life to Christ, and now he's, like, people at the baseball field are just baffled, like, wait, this guy, like, that guy? Um, we have no idea who God is working in, who he's seeking after. Jesus laid down his life for all people. He was a ransom for the world. Even those whom you may not like, Jesus loves. Let's allow this truth that Jesus died for the sins of man to prepare our minds, our hearts for Lord's Supper. So if you're a guest this morning, the first Sunday of the month, we do the Lord's Supper. And this is a time for us to just reflect on what Christ has done. Some of you may be thinking like, yeah, well, she has this cool testimony, the Samaritan. You know, she's had five wives. She's had this scandalous life. I don't really have that past. Yes, you do. You are a wretched sinner. I don't care if you came to know Christ at six years old. You were a rebel, and probably along the way, you have still rebelled against God, and God continues to receive you back. And so the table allows us to look at two elements, Christ's blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sin, his body that was broken for us, and we look at those, and we reflect on why did he have to do that? Because of me, because of my sin. See, you have a great testimony to share. You're coming to the Lord's Supper this morning because you had sin that Christ had to die for. So you have a past. And you can share that with anyone. That you were a sinner, that you still struggle. But you have a Savior who continues to forgive you of your sin. 
So no matter how far you wander away, I don't know what your week looked like. You may have had a terrible week. And Christ says, come to the table. Just repent, confess, trust in him. So this morning, when you're ready, you come. Um, if you're a guest, um, you'll just grab, there's two cups stacked together. The bottom cup has the bread, the top cup um, has the juice. And so whenever you're ready, you come and take of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts to take of this table. Uh, that, Lord Jesus, you lay down your life so that we may have ours. Lord, we thank you for giving us a testimony to share with others. May we be like the Samaritan woman and go and share with others what you have done in our lives. Lord, give us boldness. Lord, help us to not overcomplicate what you've made so simple. Lord, we thank you for, for dying for us, for defeating death, that you now reign on your throne that you are seated on high, that you're reigning above, that you're holding all things together. So even when our life seems crazy, they're all out of mess, we know that we have a God who's sovereign, who's in control. So may we just trust you no matter what. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.